Venus thromboembolism is a leading killer in the United States and is notorious for striking massively and without warning. Yet many patients can have the cause of their abnormal clotting diagnosed. You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing the thrombophilias, lover of clotting. In this segment, we will be focusing on the diagnosis of common heritable thrombophilias. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Charles Lockwood. He is the Anita O'Keefe Young Professor of Women's Health and Chair of the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Lockwood does hemostasis research and is an internationally recognized expert on the thrombophilias. Welcome, Dr. Lockwood. We are pleased to have you on the show. Thank you. Okay, I thought that we would focus on the diagnosis of the thrombophilias, and in this program, I thought we would focus chiefly on six common thrombophilias. And of course, in no particular order, I thought I would ask you first about factor V Leiden. Now, as a non-hematologist, I don't even know what it is. So what is factor V Leiden? What role does it play in a clotting cascade? So we'll start by saying a little bit about factor V, which is a critical cofactor for clotting. What factor V does when it's activated is to combine with another clotting factor called factor 10. Together, they actually convert prothrombin to thrombin, and then thrombin, as I think most of the audience knows, generates the fibrin clot and does some other things as well and sort of acts as the key player in the clotting cascade. So what factor V Leiden is, is a mutation of a guanine to adenine nucleotide that just happens to result in a shift and a switch of amino acids from glutamine to arginine at position 506 of the factor V polypeptide. Now, that may not mean much to everybody, but that position just happens to be the site where the factor V molecule is cleaved by activated protein C, and that cleavage site inactivates factor 5A, which is good because activated protein C is really a critical endogenous anticoagulant. It's critical to avoid inappropriate thromboses in folks. And so having this mutation in the factor 5 molecule renders a person resistant to activated protein C. And in fact, about 90% of people with activated protein C resistance turn out to have this factor 5 Leiden mutation. What does the Leiden refer to? Well, it was actually discovered in the Netherlands at the University of Leiden. And in fact, it wasn't just serendipitous. The prevalence of factor V Leiden is much, much, much higher in Europeans. And it's present in 5 to 10% of European women and men, but in fact is vanishingly rare in Asian and African populations. And in the United States, the prevalence among African Americans is around 3%, so it's somewhere in between. And in fact, the further north you go in Europe, the higher the prevalence of factor V Leiden. And there are various anthropological reasons for why that might have been the case. What is the test to check for this? Well, there are two different ways to screen for it. An inexpensive way of doing it is with a clotting assay that looks for activated protein C resistance. And there are ways of modifying that test so that it becomes a little bit more sensitive in pregnancy. Uh, so second-generation tests for activated protein C resistance can be used to screen for the factor V Leiden mutation, if you will, 
activate a pregnancy resistance in pregnancy. But most people actually screen for it in pregnant women by looking directly for the mutation using PCR. And most commercial labs and many hospital labs can, can do that quite easily. So it's a very specific single point mutation. That's correct. And what about the prothrombin gene mutation? So this is another European mutation, if you will. It's present in 2 to 3% of European populations. And it's a little bit different than factor V Leiden because in the prothrombin gene mutation, there's a mutation in the promoter region of the gene, which increases transcription of the gene, and that leads to a two- to three-fold increased level of prothrombin. So prothrombin, the molecule is normal. It's just that there's a lot more of it being made because of this mutation in the promoter region of the gene. And that's screened for, again, with a DNA assay using PCR. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Charles Lockwood, chair of the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale University School of Medicine. He is also an internationally recognized expert on thrombophilias. Today we are discussing the diagnosis of the common heritable thrombophilias. The next question I have is on a word I can barely pronounce, hyperhomocysteinemia. How does this cause people to have clotting tendencies? So homocysteine is metabolite of the breakdown of the amino acid methionine, and it's quite toxic to endothelial cells and, and causes endothelial cell membranes to become disrupted, and so it can promote clots in either arteries or veins if homocysteine levels are high enough. And the potential for having a hyperhomocysteinemia is quite high, again, in European populations, because the most common set of mutations that lead to it, which are called the C677T and A1298C mutations in the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene, occur in 10 to 16 and, and about 5% of European populations. So almost 20% of women, in this case of European extraction, theoretically could have hyperhomocysteinemia because they've inherited two copies of these mutated genes. So it's a very, very, very common mutation. Now, the occurrence of hyperhomocysteinemia is much rarer than that because it requires not only the mutation, but a fairly poor diet that's not rich in folic acid. And because we now enrich our cereals in folic acid, and because so many people take vitamins, and since our meals are, are generally reasonably nutritious in the United States, the actual occurrence of hyperhomocysteinemia is very, very rare. So it's actually a common mutation, but a rare cause of thrombosis. So elevated homocysteine levels occur because there's a heritable mutation in the enzyme that breaks it down, and homocysteine is toxic to the endothelium, which results in a change in the balance of the clotting cascade. Is that correct? That's a way to look at it. Okay. And then, of course, what about antithrombin-3 antibody deficiency, if that's a correct term? So antithrombin deficiency is unlike the disorders we've just been talking about, is caused by lots of different mutations. 260 different mutations have been identified in the antithrombin gene. Antithrombin is the most important anti-clotting factor we have. It directly attacks thrombin and therefore eliminates it from the circulation and reduces the risk of inappropriate thrombosis because of that. 
there are lots of different mutations that can cause antithrombin deficiency. It's a very big gene. But in fact, it's a very rare, very, very rare disorder. Only one in 5,000 women have it. So it's actually a, a very uncommon cause of thrombosis in women and, and certainly in, in pregnancy. But because it's such a, a critical anti-clotting factor, it's the most serious of all the thrombophilias. Oh, I see. And what about protein C and protein S? What do they do? So protein C, when it's activated, cleaves factor 5A and another clotting cofactor, factor 8A, the hemophilia factor. And protein S combines with activated protein C as a cofactor and makes it work better. So protein C and protein S are part of this critical anticoagulation system, the activated protein C and S system, and they work, again, by scavenging and getting rid of excess factor 5A and factor 8A. Other than these six, are there other major thrombophilias? It's hard to keep up with the literature. There are many, many new discoveries being made almost on a, on a weekly basis. And just to sort of give you a, a highlight, we now know that another set of critical anticoagulation proteins, protein Z, and the Z protease inhibitor, which inactivate factor 10, are important inactivators of factor 10A, can also be deficient, and that can lead to a slight increased risk of clotting. There's a very, very, very common mutation in the plasminogen activator inhibitor gene. Plasminogen activator inhibitor prevents premature breakdown of the clot. And so if you have this particular mutation called the 4G mutation, which is very common, 25% of people have it, you'll have elevated levels of plasminogen activator. But it's usually not important unless you have other things that can increase plasminogen activator inhibitor levels. For example, diabetes or hypertriglyceridemia or other mutations in genes that can activate it. A thing called the angiotensin converting enzyme can have mutations that lead to elevated levels of angiotensin that lead to PI-1. So because of that, and because it's not a major clotting factor, we really, really usually don't screen for it. And then there are a host of other factors that have been identified that have very modest prothrombotic tendencies. And they're probably only important when they occur in combination with one of the six major ones we talked about. I see. Now, I'm wondering, are there any populations who should be tested or screened without an antecedent uh, sentinel event? And for that matter, does any individual who has a stroke or a thrombotic event or a pulmonary embolus or deep venous thrombosis, should they automatically get these six tests? So can you talk a little bit about who should be screened? I would suggest that people with very strong family histories of thrombosis, so someone whose mother had a clot while she was pregnant and whose sister had a clot while she was on oral contraceptives should be screened. And if they're positive, then we can do a number of things. In fact, some would argue that if they have such a strong family history and they're found to have one of these common thrombophilic conditions, they probably should receive some form of anticoagulation therapy during pregnancy. So, in other words, a first-degree relative with a clot in an unusual circumstance suggests that they should be screened. That would certainly be one group. And then women who themselves have had a clot in the non-pregnant state, so for example, let's say they were skiing and got into an accident and had a fracture and developed a clot, well, that's certainly a risk factor for clotting in pregnancy, but it turns out that if you have an explanation for the clot and you don't have one of these inherited thrombophilias, you probably don't need anticoagulation therapy during pregnancy 
only after they deliver in the postpartum period, which is a more dangerous time. So any woman with a clot in the non-pregnant state that was potentially explainable by other conditions should be tested. And if they're negative, then they don't need to have anticoagulation therapy, except that there are other risk factors during pregnancy. So that would be another group that should be screened. And the screening would be those six tests. Right. Okay. Uh, that would be, for our listeners, Factor V Leiden, prothrombin gene mutation, hyperchromocystinemia, antithrombin 3 deficiency, protein C deficiency, and protein S deficiency. I want to thank Dr. Charles Lockwood, Chair of the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale University School of Medicine and President of the Society for Gynecologic Investigation, who's been our guest. We have been discussing the thrombophilias. In this segment, we focus on the diagnosis of common heritable thrombophilias. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening.